This episode of The Taylor Stevens Show is brought to you by listeners, readers, and patrons. If you'd like to learn how to support this podcast, please visit www.patreon.com slash taylorstevens. Taylor Stevens, the New York Times best-selling and award-winning author of kick-ass international thrillers, and this is the Taylor Stevens Show with my good friend Steve Campbell, where we are kicking writing in the butt one word at a time. Taylor, I kind of teased this week's episode during last week's episode. We're going to be talking about a blog post titled My First Thriller, and it's it's on the crimereads.com website, and it's an interview with Randy Wayne White. And I, I'm a big fan of Randy, Ray, Randy Wayne White, so it was, I have a hard time saying his name. That's a tongue I re- twister. I really, I really enjoy his books. This will be an interesting discussion. Uh, but before we get to that, I understand that you have a puzzle story for us. It's not really so much a puzzle story. I just haven't, like... Like with all the crisis of the snow and the ice and the pulling myself out of it and trying and to get back bill. into the electric bill, trying to get back into writing again. It's just I haven't really spent as much time doing puzzles as I had leading up to that. And like, I mean, I, I told you before, I, I blew through puzzles really fast. And then I got this one for Christmas that I really, really wanted. I was super excited about it. It's a 1,500-piece puzzle, which is normally I do like 1,000 pieces, but they just seem kind of easy. And so I was like, okay, maybe a challenge. But I kind of like <laughs> the challenge went way overboard with challenge. I don't know. So like it's this – it's a pirate ship mm-hmm. in a storm. And so the pirate ship itself was pretty easy put together it was very intricate but you know you could follow the patterns because like i had mentioned before i don't look at the box or anything i just follow the colors and the, the puzzle shapes and the patterns as they are there in front of me but the, between the water and the sky and the other sky and the other sky and the other water there's so many pieces that are the same colors like mm-hmm. you can't tell the difference until you actually you can't tell just by looking at them like you have to actually hold them up to the puzzle itself to see the gradient like my my light where I'm doing this is not very good to begin with and so it almost feels like I'm doing this puzzle blind like colorblind and and so all the pieces it's just I'm looking for puzzle shapes out of so many pieces that are all the same <laughs> and it it is challenging and so I what I thought would be like oh this one might take me two weeks or whatever I'm still working on it I'm getting close to being finished with it and lest anybody think that like I spent so much time on it like this is evenings while the tv is on other people are doing things and I'll just sit there and do my puzzles I don't want you to think I'm not writing or working (laughs) spending my whole life doing puzzles I'm not but it is a way for my mind to decompress and to sort of just let go and not be in hyper mode all the time so I've I'm torn between loving this puzzle because it's taking me so long and being really angry that it's taking me so long (laughs) and then 
I, I know I'm going to be finished with it soon because it's at the stage now where it doesn't matter if I can tell the colors or not because there's a the pieces are few enough now that I can look at them easily without digging and digging and digging trying to find something. And there's I'm just going to have to take it apart and <laughs> put it back in the box. It seems like a complete sin. Like, wait, no, I should frame it or something. I don't have any place to put it if I frame it. <laughs> so... Uh, Apparently, this is now my new struggle with puzzles is what do I do with it now that it's finished? So anyway, that's my stupid little non-puzzle puzzle story. That That is kind of the bad thing about puzzles. When you're done and, and you have been successful, all you can do is take it apart and put it back in the box. Put it back in the box. Yeah. And, and I, wouldn't, I wouldn't really care. It, would, it wouldn't even cross my mind if it's a puzzle that I did in a week of just a few hours of sitting at the table or whatever while the TV was going because there wasn't a lot of effort put into it. Not a lot of time. It's just something you did and yay, it's over and it's done, put it in the box, no big deal. But when it's something so big that you spent that much effort on, it's like, wait, and now I'm just supposed to put it away and that's it? <laughs> it's, a, it's, it's a new feeling, I guess. It's a, it's a new, like, I, I've, never, I've, never done, I've never felt this before. Let's get to today's topic, which is writing speed, kind of. And I, I mentioned we're going to be talking about a blog post, and this, this kind of relates to what, one of the things we all know about Taylor is that she's not Just the fastest it. writer in the world. <laughs> Just say it. <laughs> and lately, even... Not even less, not even less yes. fast. Even yes. less. Like, I don't know how many lessons we can put in there. Disgustingly, traumatizingly slow. So this article was, and apparently this is a feature that uh, CrimeReads.com does. Um, this my first thriller thing. And it's kind of a it's kind of a clever idea. So they give some background on the author and sort of talk about how they got to the point where they wrote their first um, thriller. So in the case of Randy Wayne White. He lives just up the road from us a bit. Very well known. He's got restaurants in the area um, and a beloved uh, character in southwest Florida. But way back in the day, he was a fishing guide. And he wound up writing for a magazine called Outside Magazine. And he was, at least according to this article, making a very good living writing a 1,000-word monthly column for Outside Magazine. Oh, those were the days. Yes, but he'd always <laughs> wanted, I, and I don't even want to do the math to figure out what that is per word. But it's, he, he'd always wanted to, to write novels. And he got the opportunity to write based on the strength of his writing it outside. And I, I need to find the exact quote in here to become involved in in sort of a pulp fiction project, and he was going to be writing with some other people. So I'm, I'm just going to read from the article here. In the early 1980s, an editor with New American Library was looking for writers to contribute to a new thriller series and ask if he would be interested in writing books under contract. The protagonist had to be blonde, work in Key West, be freakishly strong, well hung, and had to know Hemingway. And yes, and the rooster crows. <laughs> Thrice. <laughs> 
So anyway, I mean, a, a, a couple things there. They were looking for writers to write this series. They weren't looking for a writer to write this series. They were looking for writers, and and that used to be a thing back in the way that in the day there would be an idea for a series, and multiple people would write the books, and they would just. They would be written very quickly. They would be paperback originals, and they would go to market. Kind of like what pulp, right? That's what yes. a, a pulp. Yeah, a pulp. Yeah. I mean, this is like pure pulp. And I, because I'm a fan of Randy Ra- Randy Wayne White, back maybe ten or fifteen years ago, they re-released these, or maybe he he got the rights and re-released them himself. I'm not entirely sure, but they were re-released under the pseudonym that he used but it also had his name on the cover and i read the i read the books and i really enjoyed them they were fun um you know just just like fun tough guy adventure series and in reading this article he says i wrote the the first book was oh let's see he wrote the entire first book on iced tea and red man chewing tobacco in nine days as I recollect, he says, there were some nice sentences in it, and I was excited when I got the first copy. So clearly this, he did not feel like this was a great work of art. Uh, the first book was titled The Key West Connection. The author was Randy Stryker. And anyway, that was 1981, and his comment was, I think the other fishing guides were impressed. Well, the, the publisher was so happy with his speed that the editor asked if he could do it again. And when he said yes, they fired the rest of the writers that they'd hired to contribute to the series and just let Randy finish the series. So he wrote six more, six more novels under contract. They paid him $5,000 a piece, always using that pen name. And Randy's quote here is, they were awful and riddled with cliches. But the writing has held up, apparently. All of them are still in print and selling remarkably well. And, you know, I suspect they're selling remarkably well because they have his real name on them now. Uh, His next comment was, I should have been writing my own books. I felt such self-contempt, but it was a good learning experience. So before we go on to the second part of this story, I want to get Taylor's thoughts on writing a book in nine days. That's All right. My thought. So I guess I guess we can move on. <laughs> and here's uh, God. If I had that superpower, I'd take it in a heartbeat. I, I I don't care how bad the writing is, or would be. I don't care how riddled with cliche it would be. Just let me write a book in nine days. That would be awesome. I I would pump out that stuff and and be very happy to be able to pay my bills. <laughs> <sighs> So he continued to write for Outside Magazine, continued to make a good living doing that. He was writing these books and making $5,000 a pop. And, I mean, you can see the dichotomy there already. It's $5,000. These books were probably 60,000 words. That's a little different than $13,000 for a 1,000-word column. Yeah, but I'm I'm also struck by the fact this was 1980-something, right? Yes, that's a lot of money back then. And he's $5,000 a book, and this is now... 2020 something and a lot of authors are still getting paid five thousand dollars book in the meantime inflation cost of living uh so the value of being a writer has plummeted 
So after a, after a couple of years of this, um, the outside magazine gig dried up for whatever reason, and the area where he lived and and was guiding, um, something happened. The federal government decided to close down the Tarpon Bay, which was the area where he was guiding, to powerboat traffic. So overnight, he's got a family, he's got kids, and his income completely dried up. So he he decided that he would write a book under his own name. And this was this is the second part of the story now. All right, he worked day and night and completed his first book and that book is titled Sanibel Flats in 7 months. So, a little bit of a change there from 9 days to 7 months. He worked day and night, completed Sanibel Flats in 7 months. He mailed a copy to an agent who was the daughter of one of his charter clients. Within two weeks, she called back with an offer from St. Martin's Press for a three-book deal at $5,000 a book. I'm so surprised. Not. So anyway, Sanibel Flats was published in 1990, so that was nine years after he was writing the Randy Stryker books, or you know, th- those probably maybe took a couple of years for, for all of that. Um, but it, it was his first book on the cover. But what I was struck by was the difference in time when you're writing under someone else's name, no one knows it's you, and he was able to complete a readable book or a book that was able to be edited and published and is still selling today in nine days. But when it was going to be under his own name, it took seven months. And so I thought, who better to ask about this strange <laughs> disconnect than Taylor? Well, I do wonder, too, though, if when he was writing those books under someone else's name, if they weren't giving him uh, story ideas and saying, here's what we want the story to be, and he was following their instruction, or was he, like, just crafting those completely from the beginning as well? I don't know. My guess is they probably gave him a broad outline of, of what the stories should be, or but, it, you know, maybe it was just the character needs to be a tough guy. And, uh, yeah. and, and, you know, the other characteristics that we mentioned earlier. I, I've, I mean, I've thought about this a lot. I mean, for me, of course, writing under my own name, it's more than just writing under your name because it's it's a statement of this is you. Like, you, it's like if you are a jewelry maker or a craftsman or whatever, it's not just that you make stuff, but people associate everything you do with you as a person. They don't, you as a person is not separated from you as you're writing. And so it makes you pause in ways that maybe you might not if you were doing it, quote unquote, anonymously. Um, you, you care more, I think, about what people are going to think, whether they like it or not. If somebody doesn't, if, if, if a book that you wrote under someone else's name doesn't sell well, the only person you really have to care about, if they liked it or not, and were happy with it or not, is the person writing you the check. Because it's not you. Nobody knows it's you. So you are separate from how it performs. You are separate from what people are saying about it, good and bad. And it just doesn't matter. You, you're able to detach yourself from it. So I think in many ways there's a sort, there is sort of a freedom in being able to write uh, that it's that it's not it's separate from you, but I know for myself the the 
quality of the writing wouldn't change. And I know this because I, I tried. I tried it. I was like, okay, <laughs> if I'm struggling so hard to write under my own name, then maybe there'll be I could just write under somebody else's name and be better. But my issue with writing isn't attached to my name. It's an it's a thing in my brain. It's OCD. I, I, I just I just can't not write it as well as I possibly can. So whether if I'm going to, if that's how it's going to be, then there's no point in writing under a pseudonym. <laughs> it's just wasted time and make it harder for people to find my fans to find it. So, but I think for people who don't have that same OCD with words that it would be really different. Um, I've, I've talked to people who do ghostwrite, um, who are authors under their own name, but also who ghostwrite for more famous authors and, you know, just like at industry events and stuff and just people just shoot the breeze. They won't tell you who they're writing for because they're under NDAs, but um, you know that it's big names. And they'll be like, yeah, you know, if it's my own work, I'm sitting there and I'm like, you know, just trying to get a thousand words a day and beating my head against it. But when I'm doing this contract work, it's like, Hey, I did 1,500 words a day, and I obviously I'm hitting the point of diminishing turns. But hey, screw it, doesn't matter. It's not my name on the cover. I'll just pound out another 500 words. They can do whatever they want with it. So it changed, changes the the way the way that they treat the story completely changed between whether it's their own name on the cover or they're just ghostwriting for somebody else. And when you're ghostwriting, you know that what you do is not going to be the final anyway. Someone's going to go in there and change it, make it more the way they want it to be anyway. So it doesn't really matter as much, right? So that's my thoughts on it. I was thinking of um, James Patterson and all of the co-writers that he has. Yeah. And I, I took, um, I, I can't remember the name of the company. It's one of these companies that does online courses. And James Patterson did a writing course. And I, I took the writing course, right? I subscribed to the service so that I could take the course because I wanted to see the outline that he gave to his co-writers. And it was fascinating. It was like a 30 or 40 page outline that, that really was like chapter by chapter by chapter, this is the story you're telling kind yeah. of thing. So it was not, he was not giving them a broad outline. He was giving them a very specific outline. He, he is in control of the story. And but they're that, in control of the writing. Yes. And I thought yeah. that was, I thought that was fascinating. And the idea, I wonder how long it, it then would take him to come up with the outline because that's essentially the story. And then a difference, if, if you're writing off an outline like that, if it's yours, you can just at halfway through it, halfway through the story, you could say, hey, I think it would be better if we did this instead, and you could just veer off and do it. But if it's somebody else's, you've just got to follow the, the outline. Yeah, I think, like, you know, we've talked a lot before. We, I'm constantly talking about how writing novels is two, uh, two competing, complementing skill sets. There's the story creation aspect of it, which is completely different from the writing aspect of it, right? And so as a as a novelist, you've got to be strong in both of those. Uh, you've got to be a strong storyteller and you've got to be a strong writer or a strong storyteller and a passable writer or a passable storyteller and a strong writer, but you can't be bad at both, right? And so, and you can't just be a good writer and have no storytelling skills. So um, I think that Different novelists, and I say novelists instead of writers because it, I think it encompasses the the whole process better. 
they have different strengths. Like I, my strength is not in creativity. Uh, I'm not a super creative person. I've said it so many times and nobody believes me. Um, I am very much a, uh, a bean counter. Uh, I, uh, the, the, the creative process is just torture for me coming up with a story. Uh, writing it is also difficult because I'm trying to find words to articulate things that I have no words for because I don't think in words. So I, I struggled twice, struggled to envision it and then struggled to find words to concept to, to articulate what I feel and, and, and partially see. But once I have all those words down, um, where I, my strengths are in understanding the story itself, understanding the weight of story, understanding character, understanding the psychology that goes into it, and in the taking the words that are once they've been articulated and turning them into something better. So it's in the details and in in seeing how all the pieces of a story fit together. Those are my strengths. So I could never really easily do what James Patterson does, which is figure out the story and how it works and pass it on to somebody else, because I sort of figure it out as I'm the details, the the, the breakdown of it as I go, and then going back through multiple passes as I, I build on what I've already done. Um, I also would struggle to take what somebody else has developed and be able to write it because I have, will struggle to envision what they actually meant when they are saying this without a very clear picture. I've got to be able to see the picture to know what it is that I'm writing about. And that's something that I struggle to create for myself, much less with somebody else's work. But I can see how for someone who excels in any of those other areas, like if James Patterson is just a beast of a storyteller and he just it would be impossible for him to write all the stories that he's able to fully develop in his head, then this is like the perfect way for him to create endlessly and have control over his creations and let somebody else do the, the stuff that he doesn't like as much. Although he, if you read his earlier work, he's an amazingly strong writer, incredibly clean, precise language. People like to bash him because he's become synonymous with mass production. And I haven't read any of his latest work, so I wouldn't know. But I do know that his earlier books were phenomenal from a writing and story, writing perspective. I, I, I've never analyzed them from a story perspective. Um, but if you're somebody who can write like a mofo, but just really struggle to understand story, then pairing with somebody who's a good storyteller, but not a great writer would be a fantastic pairing. And so I think like when it comes to writing novels, uh, it is, it is like you're being forced to carry three hats to wear, to be three people. You have to be the writer, the creative director, and the business manager. So I'm not sure how many other professions are out there that follow similar parallels where you have to be good at not just two things like the business side of it and the creative side of it, but three things, three aspects. And so I think that if, if somebody's struggling, for example, to 
fully get where they want to go in their writing because they're just not strong in all three things. It's not like there's something wrong with you. It's like you're just not superhuman. <laughs> None of us are, <laughs> except maybe James Patterson. Um, and, and so it's not like it's your fault. It's like you write novel, being a novelist, and especially making a living as, as a novelist, it, might, it does not pay uh, to, this, to the level of skill required. Like everybody thinks that they're a writer. Everybody has a computer these days. Everybody wants to do it. Very, they're, not everybody's capable of of uh, telling the difference between what they do and what somebody who really knows what they're doing is doing. So it's just, it's kind of devalued, you know, when everybody's something, then nobody's a something. Right. So, um, but, but it, it actually, to actually be good at it requires enormous set of skills that are, are not really easy to, to obtain, you know? Uh, So if you're managing to write books and, be all three of those things and also maybe even hold down a day job. Just God, give yourself a pat on the back because, you know, you might not be getting the credit or the appreciation for what you're doing monetarily speaking, but you got to at least acknowledge to yourself that you're kicking some serious ass to be able to pull that off. And I, I will say, and speaking of, of James Patterson, and I've said this before, it's almost it, reading his books to me is like opening a bag of potato chips and, and the old lays saying you can't just eat one. I just know that if I, if I read the first chapter of a James Patterson book, I'm going to read the whole thing. So I, I have to make the decision before I read the first few pages um, that I want to read this because or that you so have the good. time, you have the, the well, space and I'm interested in the story and, and who I think the characters will be, but he's so good at setting that hook with his storytelling initially that I, I can't get away from it once I start. That's just such a compliment. Uh, it's, it's, yeah, he's, he's, he's a, he's a beast of a storyteller. I yep. without a doubt. So this is, I, I, when I first mentioned this, um, this story to, to Taylor, she was flabbergasted by the story, but, uh, she, she was willing to discuss it. So, uh, thanks for that. I, I think this was an interesting discussion. I hope you guys did as well. Uh, I was flabbergasted by the nine days. Nine, yes. <laughs> the, nine well, days of the nine days. Yes. And not so much the seven months, even the seven months, you probably go, wow, that's pretty fast. Well, I've, I've written books in seven months. Um, so if I, if I, if I, the turtle of turtles of tortoises can write a book in seven months, it can be done. It's not unheard of. There we have it. All right. And with that, we will wrap up this week's episode. Thank you guys for uh, listening. And we will be back in your ears next Tuesday. See you guys next week.